amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to another edition of New Books Network Interviews in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I am your host, Philip Falgach. Joining me today is Professor of History at Dalhousie University, Denis Kozlov. He will be talking about his newest book, The Readers of Novi Mir, Coming to Terms with the Stalinist Past. Dr. Kozlov writes about the state of Soviet memory once the party loosened the reins on journal editorship and censorship in general. Through the monthly published Novi Mir, which increased its availability and readership after Stalin's death, we begin to see a public discourse regarding the Soviet Revolution, the function and performance of the state, and the infamous terror, but then known simply as 1937, the year marking the height of the purges. Dr. Kozlov carefully examines the letters written to the editors of Novomir and the authors featured in the journal, which demonstrate the range of opinions and public discourse on these issues, as well as other ideas central to the Soviet Union and the Soviet citizens. It is during the thaw the Soviets had newfound confidence to discuss the once prohibited topics and voice what would once be heretical and anti-Soviet speech. The multiplicity of ideas and terminology coming to play in Novomir, a safe haven for Soviet memory, demonstrates the resurgence of emotions regarding the Soviet past. Here to talk more about how people made sense of and responded to details emerging about the suspicious 1930s is Denis Kozlov. Hello, Denis. Hello, Philip. Dennis, before we jump into the core of your research, would you mind telling the audience what your inspirations were in coming to Soviet history or Russian history, and in general, what you do in terms of uh, research? Well, I am originally from the Soviet Union, or today's Russia. I'm from St. Petersburg. I was born and raised there and uh, uh, went to the university there. Uh, so the inspiration is natural uh, in this regard, um, and uh, I can talk more specifically about what inspired me to do this particular book, um, but my interest in Russian history is to a great extent uh, inspired by where I come from. What would you say was the inspiration for writing on this topic? Was it the source base? Was it your attempt to re-approach the question of Stalinism and remembering Stalin's past. Could you expand on this? Sure, sure. Um, Well, uh, the central theme of this book is um, the uh, legacy and the rethinking, the reinterpretation, or attempts to make sense of uh, the uh, Stalin past uh, in the Soviet Union during the thaw decades of the 1950s and 1960s. 
the reason I chose this topic um, as central for the book because I, is because I believe that uh, this is the central topic for 20th century Russian history. Uh, the central topic, and to a large extent, I would say it is also the central topic for today's Russia in the 21st century, because the legacy of the Stalin decades and the legacy of the terror, especially the legacy of the mass political violence, which took place um, in uh, the Soviet Union in the first half of the 20th century, on an unprecedented scale, to a great extent determined uh, the shape, the nature of political consciousness uh, of uh, millions of Soviet people and, and post-Soviet people as well for the decades to come. And this process of interpreting and, and, and thinking about and discussing and coming to terms with this past, with turbulent and tragic past, continues to this day. So it is the topic that defines Russian political consciousness till now. And how did the sources themselves come to shape this research, this book? Well, the sources um, are excellent and, and, and unique in many respects because the main sources that I relied in, uh, on, on in uh, writing the book um, were several thousand uh, letters, um, unpublished archival letters from readers to the Novemir Journal, uh, the most prestigious and uh, best-known literary journal in 20th century Russia in the Soviet Union. Um, the letters that have been preserved um, in the archive of the journal, the Russian uh, State Archive of Literature and the Arts in Moscow, uh, and uh, it is rarely the case that we get a glimpse um, of uh, such a vast um, and interesting group of sources coming from uh, ordinary people in the Soviet Union, sources that tell us what people really thought about, uh, or at least what they were prepared to convey um, in writing uh, when addressing the editorial board, the editors, the writers of, uh, who published in this journal. Um, and uh, it is a wonderful source because... Um, Many people, as I discovered, sometimes to my surprise, and then it stopped being a surprise, were remarkably bold and remarkably unafraid of just about anything uh, when they expressed themselves in these letters, addressing sometimes very um, controversial and very dangerous political and historical subjects. And we're talking about the 1950s and 1960s. These are still the Soviet decades. And yet the level of... Um, uh, of boldness, of civic courage, I would say, um, that the letter writers uh, displayed in these letters um, uh, is astounding. That's what makes the source remarkable, in my opinion. Denise, you use your sources in a way that demonstrate the ability to use letters, especially those to Novomir, to trace the feelings and memories of Soviet citizens. In 1957, for instance, Novomir published a work critical highly critical of Soviet bureaucracy and corruption. Uh, the novel was called Not by Bread Alone. And the responses the readers wrote in were all but uniform, some rejecting the writer's assertions of the failability of Soviet society, but most actually relating to the story and sharing in Dunitsinov's uh, sentiment. And also through the letters to Novomir, we can gain an insight into the memories of the revolution surrounding discourse of Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, so how do you see the sources as painting a picture of a developing Soviet society and the developing memory that was becoming more and more visible uh, in the press and therefore in a larger conversation? 
Well, the central issue here, um, I would say, is the language um, and the evolution of the language during the post-Stalin decades. Because what became evident to many readers and not just writers uh, who published in Novimir was that the language of um, literary expression, uh, the vocabulary itself, became inadequate for conveying human experiences already by 1953-1954, um, even before the publication of Dudensov's book. And some new um, forms and new words were necessary. It was necessary to find them, uh, which is why the concept of sincerity became so prominent in 1953-54. And I have a chapter about Vladimir Pomerantsev, uh, which precedes the chapter on Dudensov's book. And then in 1956, indeed, in late 1956, the journal published uh, this novel, Not by Bread Alone. Um, what the chapter on this book does is it offers a, a caveat to this idea of novelty by examining some of the uh, conceptual and linguistic legacies uh, that the early Thaw inherited from the political culture of the early Soviet decades, of the Stalin decades, because obviously there was a connection. Uh, the connection should not lead us to thinking that uh, the Thaw was uh, just a, a replay or repetition of the Stalin um, era political culture uh, in a slightly different way. No, I believe that the Thaw was a fundamental departure in many ways. But yes, there were continuities, um, obviously and unsurprisingly. And uh, I came across those continuities when I was reading hundreds and hundreds of readers' letters um, in response to Vladimir Dudinsov's novel, Not by Bread Alone. Um, what I found in those letters in particular was that the problems of contemporary society and the economy especially, because the novel is about Soviet industry, uh, were often blamed on uh, the various enemies, you know, the bureaucrats who were represented as enemies, which is a traditional discourse in Soviet um, uh, culture and in Soviet literature by then. So much of this discourse actually persisted um, by 1956, 1957. Um, but then I also trace the ways in which it began to go away. So this particular chapter on Dudinsa focuses on the persistence of the old paradigms. But then also there were some new phenomena, uh, which contributed to the evolution of this political culture. For example, what was new was that uh, on a massive scale, uh, Soviet readers in 1956 and 57 were prepared to openly challenge the political authority. Openly, meaning in writing, in public, because these letters um, were addressed to editors, were addressed to many Soviet institutions, in defense of Dudinsov when he was criticized. Openly, also uh, in the sense of signing their names and providing return addresses. Very few letters were anonymous, actually. Um, and this uh, defiance uh, that so many, hundreds and hundreds, I have over 700 of these uh, letters in response to Dudinsov in particular, uh, of letter writers demonstrated was something certainly new compared to uh, the letters of the Stalin um, years, where you do not find this, at least in the late Stalin years, or you find something like that very, very rarely. So uh, it's a combination of the old and the new, and what I show uh, in this Dudinsov chapter and the chapters that follow is how the new 
slowly but surely but gradually uh, gains a certain um, rise and 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 uh, and uh, uh, becomes more and more prominent in in Soviet culture. Um, with regard to the Pasternak chapter, um, what I uh, described in this chapter uh, was again this this intellectual complexity of the thought. Um, when I examined the Pasternak affair of the nineteen of nineteen fifty eight and nineteen fifty nine, uh, at the center of this debate around Pasternak's book, Dr. Zhivago, of course, which most of the letter writers had not read, and yet they, they expressed themselves, at the center were their very intense reactions to his um, quite sacrilegious at this time attack on the intellectual and political foundation of the Soviet order, the idea of the revolution itself. To an extent, Pasternak went even further uh, than Khrushchev um, at the um, 20th Party Congress, because Khrushchev attacked Stalin, but Pasternak with his book, assaulted the very cornerstone of the Soviet regime, the revolution itself and the civil war. And at that point in 1958-59, there were many people still alive and still around, quite active, who had participated in the revolution and in the civil war. And what I examined in the chapter was how they responded to uh, this attack, um, of which they had, uh, uh, well, a very... Uh, limited perception because they only read a, a, an open letter by the, the editors of Novimir um, uh, to Pasternak that was published in, in Literaturna Gazeta. But nonetheless, it was a very big letter. It, uh, it's, uh, um, it was very detailed. It, it quoted Pasternak's book um, uh, uh, very uh, well, well. The juiciest parts of the book were actually quoted where Pasternak uh, actually was at variance with the Soviet dicta at most. Um, and uh, the letter writers responded to those quotations quite indignantly sometimes. And they actually, many of them, many of the older generation people sought to defend the revolution. Um, so this idea of the revolution still remained the cornerstone of the mental universe for numerous individuals. Uh, but also what I described in the chapter was that the affair highlighted the anxieties of the time. And it showed that all the readers, whether we talk about older letter writers or younger letter writers, shared this fundamental sense of disorientation of, um, of a certain shaken world that was no longer confident in the uprightness of its historical path. Uh, they defended the revolution, and yet uh, the question itself was thrown in the open uh, about whether the victims, uh, this number and this, this, uh, this amount of violence was really justified. So the discussion began at this point, and it was to continue. So that's what I tried to show in this chapter. Denise, it seems that in the years after Stalin's death, discussing uh, Stalin's past and the, what we now know as a terror was growing to be more and more uh, acceptable. So when it came to remembering Stalin and the terror of the late 1930s, the editorial boards and the publications on the matter played a large role in inciting memories on that topic. So what was the nature of discourse surrounding the terror? And what was the agenda of the editorship uh, in drawing in the memories of the past in order to uh, help develop this discourse of the past in Soviet society? 
Well, Twardowski um, was the editor of Novy Mir twice um, in the early 50s, from 1950 to 1954. Then he was removed from office after the uh, Pomerantsev affair and a few other articles that the journal published in 53 and 54. Um, and then he became editor-in-chief again in 1958, actually very shortly before the Pasternak um, affair, and remained the editor until 1970. Um, Tardovsky um, was one of the earliest uh, minds and one of the earliest um, um, individuals in Russian literature who um, sensed this fundamental need to address the historical experience of the 20th century, to incorporate that experience in literature. Uh, first of all, because without this rethinking of the past, without the rethinking of the tragic past, and to many, um, um, to, to some extent it was also, to a very large extent, it was Twardowski's personal past, too. Uh, without this rethinking, it would not be possible to move forward. So that was his conviction. So he made this theme of uh, the terror, uh, which was not yet known as the terror, by the way, at that point. The term was rarely in use. Um, he made this theme uh, one of the central, if not the central priority um, uh, of, his, of his work. And uh, the problem that he immediately faced when he tried to deal with this, this issue was the lack of words, the lack of words in the official literature that allowed not only to explain what had happened, but even to describe it, even to address these problems. How would you, how would you describe what had happened uh, during collectivization uh, in 1937 um, uh, or um, at other moments, uh, very tragic moments in the recent Soviet past without the proper language available? And he tried to deal with this issue in his own poetry. He began experimenting as a poet um, in 1953 and 54 and 55 um, and later um, uh, with this theme um, and his poem Far Away is one of the attempts, one of the earliest actually attempts to do that. Um, so Twardowski became fully convinced that uh, literature needed to be reformed at this very fundamental linguistic level and this is why he was actively looking for some fresh ideas and, and fresh blood, so to say, in, in literature, somebody who could reinvigorate literature, bring it back to um, its, first of all, classical standards, the standards of uh, 19th century classical literature, but also find some new words and new themes um, that would allow to address the 20th century experience. Um, and this problem became especially acute for him after the 20th Party Congress, uh, which is interesting because Twardowski had reflected about the problem of the terror long before uh, the 20th Party Congress. And yet the Congress came as a great shock to him, Khrushchev's secret speech, um, probably because uh, it was this public recognition of the massive scale and the central place, really the central place of the terror in Soviet history. Um, not a marginal phenomenon, but something that was at the very core of this system. And from that point on, even more than before, this became the theme for Twardowski, 
and that is why he um, began looking for uh, somebody from outside literature, somebody from outside professional, professional literary realm, who could uh, provide this fresh new perspective, and Solzhenitsyn became such a person for him, um, as did many other authors. So, uh, this chapter on uh, uh, Twardowski really deals with uh, the strategies of the journal um, at its highest peak of influence in Soviet society, uh, and the strategies that uh, were inspired, of course, uh, by the editor-in-chief. And based on those guidelines, it is interesting for the readers to note that Journey into the Whirlwind, a famous uh, memoir by Evgeny Ginsberg, was originally actually rejected by Twardovsky and Novimir. Uh, so what sorts of issues did Twardovsky have with the memoir, and how did it stand against his agenda going forward in the editorship of Novimir? Yeah, that, that is a very interesting story. He indeed rejected Ginsburg's book, which is now, of course, published and very, very famous as one of the major accounts of the terror experience of the Gulag. He rejected it for two reasons, uh, I think. First of all, um, uh, Ginsburg, if you read her book, began her um, account of the terror with... Um, 1937, or actually with 1934, with the cure of murder in December 1934, and actually one of the first sentences in the book says exactly that. 1937 began, began in 1934, right? And 1937 for her was the tragedy of the intelligentsia, of the party intelligentsia, uh, primarily, not only, not exclusively. That was Twardowski's understanding. And of course, he could not agree with this because he had witnessed collectivization. He had suffered personally, had to renounce his own parents uh, during collectivization in 1931. And the fact that Ginsburg was one of these um, members of the party intelligence uh, who disregarded this monumental tragedy of the Russian peasantry was, of course, an offense to him was an affront. She did not exactly disregard it, but that was his perception at least. So that was one major reason why he rejected the manuscript. And the other major reason was that um, Ginsburg was an intellectual. And uh, Twardowski, although he recognized that uh, the book was wonderfully written and he actually praised uh, her writing um, very, very highly, still was looking for something else. He was looking for somebody uh, for some author who would not be well-versed in the literary political culture, in the Soviet literary political culture, in this intelligentsia culture, who would step outside these, these cliches and, and provide something entirely new. Um, so uh, that was another reason why he, um, in my opinion, um, why he uh, rejected uh, Ginsburg's manuscript. Uh, there, was, there was a certain antipathy that he felt uh, toward her. It is very clear in your research that Vardowski had strict guidelines for what he believed to be acceptable literature in regard to state violence. And unlike Ginsburg, Ilya Edinburgh was able to publish his memoir, People, Years, and Life, in the pages of Novimir. So what made the difference between the two memoirs, and why was Edinburgh successful in having his memoir published as opposed to uh, Ginsburg? Yeah. Well, uh, Twardowski did not like Edinburgh either. 
personally, they were quite at variance with each other, and they actually quarreled a lot when the book was in process of being published because it was serialized in, in Novimir. It was published over the span of five years, actually from 1960 to 1965, and not the entire text was published. The, the uh, reductions were quite, um, quite significant. Um, uh, and uh, they actually disputed quite substantively what Ehrenburg remembered or claimed to have remembered, and Twardowski disagreed with him uh, quite often. But at the same time, he recognized the significance of this memoir, the significance of creating this major canvas of 20th century culture, because Ehrenburg had known so many intellectuals, both in Russia and in the West. He was you know, as Western as he was Russian. He spent many, many years in France. Uh, and uh, Twardowski recognized that many of these names had been stricken, often physically, from public memory, and it was necessary to recreate that memory, to bring the names back. And, of course, the names of those people who were repressed were first and foremost here. Uh, so, um, in this regard, he actually um, thought very highly of Ehrenburg. So, and, and this actually speaks highly of Twardowski as well, because he was able to uh, overcome his personal dislike of Ehrenburg and actually recognize the significance of the manuscript and publish it. He never disputed that. And he actually fought for Ehrenburg's book uh, to be published. Um, um, so in, the, in this regard, uh, if we consider the main issue, on the main issue, they, they, they did agree, actually. What is so interesting is the multiplicity of responses that Novomir received on Ehrenburg's uh, memoir. But what were the main themes and main trends in what the readers had to say and how they were able to think about uh, the memoir? Um, well, the responses were actually very interesting because uh, many readers, first of all, reacted to this uh, cornucopia of new names and new very major famous names in 20th century culture that Ehrenburg discovered for them. He discovered an entire universe, cultural universe, both Russian and Western, um, uh, that they had not known about. So they, of course, thanked him for that. But equally, and even more so, perhaps, interestingly, again, it was the problem of the terror. Because another major theme of Ehrenburg's book was uh, human survival and existence in times of in, in, in times of great tragedies, great turbulences, and of course living in the times of terror, living with your teeth clenched, as he put it, uh, was a central theme for him. And uh, as many, and perhaps even more, readers' letters responded to that. This problem of silence, of what this keeping silent and being silent during the terror meant, this forced silence. You had to keep silence, but what was underneath the silence? Did the silence mean that the people necessarily agreed with everything that was happening? Did it not mean that? Did they support the terror? Did they not support the terror? And that became a major point of controversy in the early 1960s, 1960. Uh, 263, more specifically, well, actually 1961, I would say. It began then, but 63, it reached a certain peak. Um, uh, so that, as well, uh, became a topic of utmost interest for the readers. And, 
of course, when they began um, writing about this, and they wrote very long autobiographical letters, really trying to understand what had happened to them during the terror, what they had thought, what they had believed, what they had not believed during the terror. They really dissected this in 30, 40, 50 page long handwritten letters, entire autobiographies, uh, which they uh, wrote for several days in a row sometimes and then sent to the editorial board, entire copybooks filled with their recollections and reflections. And of course, what they discovered for themselves was that underneath the silence in 1937, for instance, the peak of the Great Terror, there was a host of feelings, and not necessarily people agreed, and not necessarily people supported. Um, and uh, the issue was what they really thought, and, uh, and of course, uh, there was an issue of whether you could or could not resist, and many people, of course, argued that no, you could not uh, resist openly, but nonetheless... Uh, uh, they actually described in, in quite fascinating detail um, their their uh, memories of what actually people talked about in 1937-38. When did people, for example, begin whispering? When did when they began uh, talking about the the um, re the reprisals, the executions, the trials in whispers? Uh, when they stopped believing, and there was a dynamic there. There was a point when they did believe. There was a point when they stopped believing. As repression moved closer and closer to them personally, to their families, to the people whom knew, they knew exactly were, uh, were innocent. Uh, so uh, it was an incredible complexity uh, that the letters revealed, and I tried my best to show this complexity. Dennis, you were certainly able to convey that message. And you also bring up this interesting relationship between the reader and Novimir, where readers take on Novomir as this beacon of truth uh, and a defense of human rights. And Novomir concerns itself largely with this topic. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it did. Uh, well, uh, Novomir, first of all, but, uh, but again, the letter writers uh, first and foremost. Uh, the issue of human rights uh, emerges in the chapter on the Sinyavsky-Daniel um, affair of 1965-1966. Um, and this is already after the peak of the discussion about the Great Terror that became um, more or less open in the Soviet, very relatively so, of course, but, uh, but more or less open in the Soviet uh, media and in literature in the early 1960s. There were a few years when books like Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich at great difficulty, but were allowed into print, and this discussion was quite widespread, in fact. And then the new political leadership of the country places the topic on hold um, after Khrushchev was ousted from power in 1964. By 1966, mentions of the terror go away. And then there is this trial of Sinyavsky and Daniel, the two writers who are accused of um, having smuggled their texts out of the country and published them in the West um, It's uh, as an unsanctioned publication. Um, so they're accused of... Um, uh, doing harm to their 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 country uh, by associating with its enemies, etc., etc. There is a major trial. Uh, they're sentenced to quite lengthy terms of imprisonment: Sinyavsky to seven years and Daniel to five years of um, of imprisonment. And then, my question here was: How did people react to that? It's the the first major show trial, actually, after the. Um, 
uh, the, uh, after uh, Khrushchev's ouster from uh, power. Uh, and in these reactions, I discovered quite a lot of interesting things. First of all, indeed, the human rights issue. For the first time, people begin talking about political democracy and about human rights. In defending Sinyavsky and Daniel, there were many, many letters of defense uh, of Sinyavsky and Daniel in 1965 and 1966. Uh, and these very terms, democracy, uh, presumption of innocence, for example, um, a lot of this conversation centered on presumption of innocence, which had not yet been official then by, in the Soviet Union, had not yet been officially adopted as a principle of Soviet jurisprudence. Mm, this would come later in the 1970s. But still, there was a lot of discussion already during the thaw in the 1960s about presumption of innocence, and evidently people were receptive to that, at least some people who were watching what was going on. So you suddenly encounter this language, this, uh, this idea of presumption of innocence, and then this idea of following the law, following uh, the Constitution, um, making the trial open, um, and uh, following even the Soviet law, the Soviet law which was, uh, well, uh, arbitrarily manipulated, as we know, but formally speaking, on paper, there were many good laws, there were many good articles in the Constitution. Suddenly people begin, many people at least, begin demanding that the, these um, articles be followed, that the letter of the law be followed. And this discourse had not been there in, the, say, the late 1950s and how people responded to the Pasternak affair. And the question is why it had not been there. Uh, so in looking for answers, I found a lot of overlap, again, between this legal discourse and the theme of the terror, because the two um, parallel each other and accompany each other very closely in practically each of these letters. Because the model is this, we need to follow the law, we need to follow the letter of the law, otherwise there will be a resumption of the terror, there will be a resumption of this enormous violence that we had just seen. In order not to admit that, we have to create certain guarantees. And this is why the language of human rights comes into place. And the whole human rights movement in the Soviet Union comes exactly out of this desire, out of this idea, out of this um, wish to prevent the resumption of terror. So this, this is the connection that I build. Um, interestingly, what I should add here, um, the uh, picture in the Soviet Union, uh, the picture of opinions that we, the panorama of opinions that we get in the Soviet Union was not that different from what was happening in Western Europe during the post-World War II decades because there is the same attention to legal discourse, the letter of the law and creating certain legal guarantees against the resumption of mass violence. Uh, first of all, in West Germany, this principle of superlegality that becomes the foundational principle of West, the West German the constitutional system. Attention to law in France um, during the same years. And, uh, well, in, in Germany, of course, uh, the issue was Nazism and, the, and preventing the resumption of what had happened um, uh, to Germany under Hitler. Uh, but this general idea that law stands in the way of this violence was actually quite common um, in Europe in those years. Whether we talk about 
Western Europe, whether we talk about the Soviet Union. The exact forms were different. The understandings of what democracy means, of course, were vastly different. But there is also a commonality, which I find very interesting and quite remarkable. After the war, the Soviet powers are always concerned with making sure that the Soviet audience develops its tastes and that its tastes grow. So over the course of the political changes from the after-war period through the 70s, how do you see the audience, the Soviet audience, changing and developing its tastes and its desire for a different type of literature and culture uh, in the same period? Well, um, what I would highlight here is um, a much greater respect for the individual, for the individual's life, dignity, and opinion. And this respect actually grows uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, and this is how the thaw is in many ways fundamentally different from uh, the preceding years in Soviet history. So that's uh, one very important aspect of evolution. Um, and then another aspect is the evolution of the language itself. The thaw witnessed a great diversification of language, of languages, in fact, at this point of self-expression. Um, when you read these letters, when you read thousands of letters, actually, uh, over a great span of time, you begin to see how the language becomes much less uniform, how people acquire their own voices, um, not completely different from, uh, sometimes not completely different from the voices of uh, and scripts of the media, but increasingly different. And this is a fascinating process of uh, how these voices emerge, how instead of this seemingly uniform they, we gradually uh, receive uh, a, a great variety of individuals who are willing to express themselves in a great variety of voices. And again, unafraid, and again, uh, quite bold in this self-expression. So that was... That was uh, important to me to see this process of evolution. And also what is important here is that this evolution does not stop at any point in the 1960s. This actually stays well beyond the thaw. This is the legacy of the thaw. The, the thaw was not just a temporary um, small short period in Soviet history that was followed by another freeze. No, not at all. Uh, the thaw actually fundamentally shaped the post-Soviet culture and the, and, and the um, the mindset of, um, of, of late Soviet and post-Soviet individuals in many ways, and these are exactly the ways. Um, so in that sense, um, the evolution of the individual is, is, is quite central here. You're quite right. Denise, is there anything else that you would like the reader to take away from your book? Anything that you feel especially strong about as a contribution to Soviet history or just in general about the Soviet uh, existence? Um. Well, um, it is quite rare, although it's becoming more frequent in, uh, in uh, literature um, these days, uh, that we get such a panorama of uh, uh, people's opinions about what was going on around them and what was going on in their minds. Um, what I find interesting, again, is this willingness of really thousands of people to reflect, to think, 
and to talk openly about what um, what were the pressing uh, intellectual and political and historical issues for them. What I find interesting is this fascinatingly high level of independence and political maturity that I've discovered when reading those letters by quite ordinary Soviet citizens. Um, and uh, both this independence and this maturity, I think, are important and uh, this understanding um, that I uh, hopefully bring in the book uh, may be something new. Uh, I, I do hope that it will be new and it will be interesting for the readers. Denise, thank you so much for telling us about your new book. Before we let you go, could you please tell us about any new projects that you're working on or things that you are currently in the process of completing? Absolutely, sure. Um, well, now that I have finished this project and also um, another uh, book, it's an edited collection of articles uh, which is titled The Thaw, Soviet Society and Culture during the 1950s and 60s, which I co-edited. It also came out this year. Uh, the next project will examine the cultural and social and intellectual history of migrations in late Soviet society. Um, migrations from the provinces to the capitals, to Moscow and to Leningrad, and how the capitals received the newcomers uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, really. That will be the late Soviet decades that I'll focus on. Um, it is an important project, I think, because um, migration is this litmus test, and the migrant, this persona of the migrant, uh, immigrant, emigre, exile, call it what you wish, um, is uh, this test that allows us to see how receptive and open and adaptable and accommodating society is, how dynamic it is. Um, so exploring migrations can tell us quite a lot about this society and this culture, about any society, in fact. Um, so this is what I hope to do. I've uh, started working on the project. It uh, will take a few years. Of course, I don't promise any results uh, immediately, but uh, it may be something interesting in the end. Denise, thank you again for joining us on New Books Network to talk about readers of Novimir coming to terms with Stalin's past. You're most welcome. My pleasure. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.